0: Welcome to Partner Path, a podcast that unpacks the venture capital and growth equity ecosystem from a junior perspective. Young entrepreneurs and investors have already had a massive impact on the industry, having started unicorns and launched billion-dollar funds. We discuss these success stories and more by sharing perspectives and advice from some of the industry's most prominent role models. This podcast expresses our views as of the date published and does not represent the views of and is not endorsed by any company for which we work.
1: Today, we'd like to introduce Carlos Alonso, a principal at Fintech Collective based in New York City. Welcome, Carlos. Thank you. So after attending undergraduate school at the University of Pennsylvania, you worked in sales and trading at J.P. Morgan and then hopped to the operations side at Suyo, which was a tech platform that creates social and economic opportunities for low-income families. Then after that, you went back to Penn to get an MBA. So it'd be great to start with, what was the motivation to go back to Penn to get an MBA?
2: Yeah, the motivation was that at that point, I'd been an operator for almost three years. I'd clearly gone off the deep a little bit, having moved to a foreign country and helped build an early stage startup. Um, And I thought that it would be helpful to redirect my career back to, to the US, so to speak, but also because I thought it would empower me to be able to transition into another role. And that's where I saw venture as a true possibility. So I thought that I thought that going back to get the MBA would help me with that. But also it, it complemented the fact that I didn't only get an MBA, right? I also went for a master's in public administration at the Kennedy School. It was exactly that combination that I that I wanted. The Harvard Kennedy School is where the startup that I helped build had been incubated. I thought it would be a very interesting place from an intellectual perspective. And also, you know, I do have ambitions in the public sector more long term. So I, you know, it's it's a place where I want to spend time.
1: So, what was your specific role at Suyo, and then why did you decide to switch to investing from operations?
2: What was my specific role at Suyo? A bit of everything, basically. Uh, initially, it was very business development focused, as you can imagine. It was a four-person company, so having the creating the initial pilot and really find the, the early signs of product market fit. But then, eventually, it was really operations focused, right? So, and that meant initially actually structuring the back end of the. And the processes for the company to function, right? Because it involved processes that entailed the role of an architect, an engineer, and a lawyer, structuring that and creating those teams, and then subsequently actually built focused much more on building the sales capabilities of the company, hiring different heads of sales for different stages within Colombia that we're expanding to, creating commission structures and things of that nature. That's what I focused on. Why did I switch to that? I realized that I definitely wanted an experience in in creating something. I think the feeling that you get from creating an early stage company is is an extremely unique one. i had had some exposure to that by trying to help build a microfinance institution when I was in university, but um, I realized that that it's it's something I wanted to live.
1: Got it. And I wouldn't say Suyo fits cleanly in the fintech bucket. So what initially sparked your interest in fintech?
2: Although Suyo was not directly a fintech company, we did, what, what really catalyzed sort of the conversations that we worked with different fintech players some of the early wallets right that started appearing in the in the Colombian ecosystem at least to help our customers pay. I mean I think that that really got me a little, very curious as to how technology was improving to facilitate financial access having grown up in emerging markets where obviously financial access is a big struggle. I was always curious about that and I think that from there obviously going back to business school in a place like Wharton right where where fintech is a big theme naturally given the financial orientation of the curriculum it was I just developed more and more interest.
1: I love the social impact and economic inclusivity aspect of that. And we're definitely going to get into LATAM and fintech investing a little bit later. But just starting at a high level, you're at Fintech Collective, an early stage fund in New York. What's Fintech Collective's sweet spot?
2: Yeah, so we focus on early stage um, fintech companies, as, as you can as you can get from the name, right? Typically, Seed, Series A, our initial Checks are probably in the vicinity of 3 to $10 million. We love to lead our cold lead rounds, so typically we aim for interesting ownerships in the companies that we, that we invest in. We have more of a frontier sleeve as part of our core strategy that allows us to write smaller checks into thematic areas or geographies where we have less expertise. Um, and we also have our DeFi fund, which, which functions a bit differently within the, within the FTC.
1: It would be great if you could touch on the qualities needed for associate to principal and principal to partner level position. From associate to
2: principal, the biggest thing is that you have to be able to truly not only come up with like thematic conviction on areas that you find interesting and sourcing, but you actually have proof that you can execute on deals. And ideally, I think sit on board, at least be a reliable point of contact and support for the companies in the portfolio. That's the big transformation. To transition from there to partner, you have to prove that, one, your investments perform. You have to show that you are a value-added board member, that you're an attractor of talent. So not only are you capable of sourcing, but you're starting to develop enough of a reputation or enough of an expertise that people are coming to you and that helps both your ability to source, but you're also your ability to help companies in the portfolio. And lastly, I think fundraising, right? As a partner, obviously, I think there's much more expectation on the fundraising side, but potentially bringing in LPs, managing relationships with LPs, that makes a difference.
1: Can you touch on ways that you add support to your portfolio companies?
2: One thing for us, is of course most obviously right in terms of strategic support, right? We are global fintech investors, so we have a level of expertise in the subject area that we deal with that I think few investors have. And also that comes with an exposure to funds that are relevant in that space, right? And that would look at subsequent rounds that we can, of course, make introductions to and expose companies to. I think that would be the most obvious part. But I think we look, we, we get involved very tactically, right? We have help companies work on pricing, redefine commission structures for sales teams and organize that. We have helped companies with business development, of course, like actually making introductions that are conducive to, to revenue generation, right? Within the companies themselves. And we have helped companies, I think, also with hiring, not only by locating profiles, but we also get out of our way to help them interview and convince people that can come into the company. I think there's several examples where we have brought helped bring C-suites to different companies in the portfolio. Those are tangible examples, I think. More than that, we're, we are a constant support and contact with a lot of the
0: funders. would love to touch on just a general intro to fintech. It's one of the more common vertical specializations you see within investment teams, and obviously your firm focuses exclusively on it. Maybe just to start, could you give us a quick overview of what is fintech in your eyes? And then why is it so common to see vertical specialization within fintech?
2: Fintech is financial technology, literally speaking, right? That can, of course, mean, broadly speaking, the majority of the development, right? in the initial waves was in banking, lending, payments. There are many other areas, of course, categories such as wealth and asset management. You have capital markets, insure tech, right? I see as part of the fintech universe, prop tech as well. That's probably speaking, right? But of course, there's plenty of SaaS native models that develop fintech capabilities on top. So part of the reason why it's so common, I think, to see vertical specialization is exactly because of the fintech capabilities that can come into different companies, right? So Having a perspective on how that, how these models apply to different to different verticals and why I think is as important as understanding the FinTech capabilities themselves.
0: I think something that's fairly unique to FinTech is that some of these dominant players in the industry have cultivated a lot of innovation and led to a lot of spinoffs. So think of the PayPal mafia, now the Stripe mafia, these behemoths that have, have kind of cultivated creativity within the teams and, and led to a lot of offshoots. What do you view as the, the top emerging trends within FinTech today? Where are you guys looking to spend time? In terms of infrastructure, there's still a lot to be done, both in the financial operation
2: space, in terms of building financial automation toolboxes at a an enterprise level, as well as in payments. I think in I think in terms of payment orchestration, both online and offline, there's there's still plenty to be seen, especially as different companies innovate in the in the payment rails that they that they're building out and providing. Brazil being a very good example. But besides that, the idea of embedded finance still has a, a lot of room to grow. I think there's Multiple verticals of traditional sectors, quote unquote, where business models are open are are definitely open to innovation that can that can take a variety of directions. But basically, broadly speaking, right, the ability to create platforms and 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 products that are either partly monetized SaaS or have SaaS like characteristics in terms of recurrence and stickiness at the least, and that you can layer on financial services on top of that, as well as payments. I think that there's still a lot to be done there. Do you see that evolving in the U.S. and abroad? I see that happening globally. I think venture in general has become a lot more decentralized than than it was before. And I think it happens in different ways in different
0: places. But overall, it's this is a global phenomenon. That's great. And you touched on Latin America. I guess we'd love to leave fintech behind for one second here. You cover emerging markets more broadly. We'd love to focus on LATAM for today's discussion. Walk through a history of the, the venture and growth investing historically in Latin America and touch on which regions are most active and why?
2: I think venture and growth investing have been happening in Latam for, for quite some time, but I would say particularly 2018, 2019 is when things turned the corner. Of course, having SoftBank raise a massive vehicle that was dedicated to region, I think shed a lot of light into it. Of course, the, the COVID-induced funding boom, I think, was especially exuberant, we could say, in Latin America. So 2020 and 2021 had Amounts of capital that were multiple above what we had seen before coming to the region had a lot of funds that were foreign based that were actually that began looking at the region with more dedication and, and, and participating in the region. And of course, it allowed local VC to prosper, right? I think you had both in the sense of local funds being raised, especially in the Mexican ecosystem significantly sized funds basically came to be as a consequence of that. Brazil, I think, already had bigger funds. And I think it shed light to the fact that venture in LATAM was incredibly concentrated in Brazil. I think prior to that, today, I think you have different hubs, but it's becoming a bit of a mostly bipolar world between Sao Paulo and Mexico City. For several reasons, over the last few years, a lot of The other hubs in LATAM, such as Santiago de Chile, Lima, or Bogota, right, have become more difficult to operate in. I think a lot of, in part, because of leftist governments that took power there that have made conditions harder for entrepreneurs. But also, I think because as a consequence of this boom that we saw in 2020, 2021, a lot of foreign funds were telling founders, especially speaking LATAM, that if you're not going to be in Brazil, you need a market to reach significant scale. That market is Mexico. You have to be active in Mexico. Looking three, two years later, is that you have. A lot of the in Spanish speaking Latin am actually concentrating in Mexico City.
1: Deal sharing is prevalent in the U.S. Do you find that deal sharing is the same in Latin America? And do you have those relationships and share deals across borders?
2: Yes, 100%. Deal sharing is is common. I also think that like in the U.S., you have funds that have relatively concentrated portfolios that seek to lead rounds and have significant ownership in their investments, and obviously that creates competitive dynamics, right? But that's a good sign. I think in any
0: In any good ecosystem, that's what you want to see. On that, would love to hear about what you view the risks of investing in LATAM. Touch on currency depreciation and kind of political turmoil and and how that could impact an investment.
2: Let's see. Um, One of the key risks for fintech specifically in a
0: place like Latin America
2: is understanding the regulatory landscape, right? Obviously, depending on some models more than others, understanding where the regulator is heading and, and what they're doing is vital. And I think that that has definitely consequences on your possibility of success. That's a risk. And that's why local knowledge is, is certainly important. The path to exit and liquidity, so fundraising risk, always has been, right? Because you already had some examples of companies, especially in Brazil, right? That were able to access the US public markets and sort of went from pitch deck to IPO. But I think that story is still fully proving out for Mexico. And I think that nowadays, because of dynamics in the growth markets, right? like fundraising risk is, is is a real risk, right? Like really being able to raise, raise enough growth funds to be able to grow at the pace that a venture outcome will require. That's certainly a risk. And you mentioned currency depreciation. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw significant depreciation across the region. I would say that the Mexican peso, I think, has behaved differently to several currencies in the region, which is something notable. But yes, you have to understand that if your companies are collecting revenue in local currency, which not all do. Some of these SaaS players are actually collecting, collecting in USD. That's a significant risk, right? And I think when you make your bare baseball scenarios or however you want to call it, right, or your model of a, of a fund returning outcome, you have to take some depreciation, the possibility
0: of depreciation into account. Actually, in my prior role, I had helped with LATAM coverage and specifically under a Mexican investment, e-commerce investment in the space. And I think it was during that underwriting where I think I heard a data point that 60% of all transactions are still done in cash. And obviously, it's just one data point within the broader LADAM. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on how a lack of digital adoption could play a role in, in, in a successful tech investment in the space.
2: So the lack of tech adoption is, is a blessing and a curse, right? In a way, it exposes why there's massive opportunities and why there's ample area for disruption at the same time of course it means that it means that there might be more hesitation right from the population to adopt to adopt certain solutions or or pay for certain products right i think part of the challenge of selling saas in latin america to the middle market and the longer tail is exactly that most people they're not used to doing certain things digitally it's cheap enough that they can hire one or two extra people to do it manually so why would they pay for a saas product for that right like it just seems like it's to, to many people, it would not be worth it. At the same time, right? The, the fact that, that the existing system is so inefficient, if you can prove that it's differential enough, it opens the possibility to, to create massive value. So I, I see it as both a blessing and a curse.
0: You touched on the, the history of growth investing. Some of the beneficiaries there have been unicorns like DLocal and Rappi. Would love to hear about your thoughts on how they've impacted the space in, in just having companies that have set the path. How have they have impact impacted the
2: space? Success stories motivate ecosystems and motivate people to actually go out and do things. Both of these have produced several founders that spun off to create their own ventures, especially at Rappi. The Rappi founders have been incredibly supportive, including angel checks from them, right? To be able to help foster this PayPal mafia type effect in Latin America. That is 100% right. One thing I think, in, especially in the case of the local, right, which has clearly gone public and become a massive company that operates globally. It shows that you can actually build from Latin America to the world. And in both of these cases, I would also highlight the fact that they come from countries where you like arguably, well, definitely in the case of Uruguay, arguably in the case of Colombia, you don't have critical mass to scale a unicorn just domestically. They have proven that you can actually operate at a cross-regional level and create a sizable outcome. Speaking to the phenomenon that we were describing before, for founders that don't come from Mexico or Brazil, I think it empowers them to, to create.
1: What challenges have you seen companies face when trying to sell into the U.S.?
2: One is competition. The existing solution is just dramatically inferior and antiquated, I think, in the U.S. There's been enough innovation that it's a harder selling point. Two, actually structuring a sales team capable of of doing that successfully is a challenge. I think the sales culture of organizations in the U.S. is not comparable in Latin America. Finding talent to lead very high-performing sales organizations in Latin is a very difficult thing to do. If selling into the U.S. is even harder, right? Having the people that can do that is difficult.
1: It's interesting. I mean, there's so much opportunity in LATAM and just with regulators open the door, it gives the opportunity to create these resilient business models. But funding has dropped everywhere, but specifically it dropped, I think, 54% this last quarter. I mean, do you anticipate a spike coming in the upcoming quarters?
2: Central governments right, play a vital role in actually providing the rails for payments, I would say. Brazil, in this case, is a world-class example. You asked me about the regulatory environment of the U.S. versus LATAM. The Brazilian Central Bank is well beyond where the U.S. government has unfortunately landed so far in terms of innovation, at least in terms of real-time payments. To the point that there's advisors like from PIX that are actively helping the FedNow project, as far as I understand. I and mean, I think that says a lot. PIX is a world-class example of innovation in terms of providing real-time payment rails. It was inspired by UPI in India, but it grew even faster the government to answer that question has to set the infrastructure for these things to happen so building the rail so to speak but it also has to create or incentivize quote unquote right it has to it has to incentivize the players to come to the table right in Brazil if the central bank had not taken a strong approach and in is in effectively forcing the banks to comply with the with the bigs project it would have never been possible because the banking sector is hugely concentrated if you look at a country like peru interoperability is has been chosen as a more viable route and obviously that is not as strict, so to speak, of an approach, right? So there's different ways that this can happen, but certainly the, the regulator has to sort of marshal and coordinate the private sector players, so to speak, into being part of a new system. I think it just doesn't happen otherwise. I would say those are the two big rules.
1: And switching over to neobanks, I mean, neobanks in the US really surged during the pandemic and even given the current environment with higher interest rates, I would have expected a little bit of continued success in the US. However, I mean, no one's really figured out how to become profitable yet but neobanks in Latin America have really shown astonishing growth and profitability. I believe that new banks saw positive operating income this year. So it would be great to hear about you know, your assessment on the profitability potential of neobanks in Latin America compared to the US.
2: The latest, what is it, quarterly earnings for new bank came out yesterday, right? I think the profitability potential is massive in the sense that you're competing with less. I think also the, the legacy players just have, have much less developed digital capabilities. There's a lot of room to run. Also, in the U.S., neobanks, for the most part, took a less regulated route. Brazil is different, but, it, but especially in Mexico, a lot of the neobanks have had to become regulated, which makes, it, which makes it slower to grow at first. But once you have that, you can actually offer services in a more, in a more profitable manner, which I think allows you to create more of a financial for the players that you're serving.
1: FinTech Collective led a seed financing for Matilda, which is a Mexico City based SaaS solution helping private schools in Latin America streamline their financial and administrative process. EdTech can be a challenging market in the US from a VC perspective. I'm curious on what drew your attention to Matilda, the pain point, and how did you think through the market opportunity? So the TAM.
2: What drew my attention to Matilda is the fact that Matilda is a very good example of what we were saying of having a product that has. SaaS or SaaS-like characteristics, but is able to monetize on financial services. And what really drew me to this opportunity as well is the fact that you have certain partnerships that this team has already formed and is continuing to form, which stem from the fact that they're experts in this space at the end of the day, that allow them to acquire at a very fast rate and through very concrete channels, many of which born from exclusivity agreements. I found that very attractive, right? I think there's ample room to grow pretty fast as a consequence of these market dynamics and And I think a lot of these partnerships actually transcend. Not only does the problem transcend to other countries in the region, but a lot of these partnerships actually allow them to just to jump to other countries with relative ease. And I think it's something we will see in Matilda over the rest of this year.
1: So I guess just the last subject that we'll touch on, and I'm not sure if you put a lot of emphasis in your current investing. But FinTech Collective does have crypto exposure, mainly through DeFi investments. So I'd love to get your take on DeFi and how FinTech will be impacted by this type of technology.
2: DeFi is, is basically decentralized finance, right? So you think about blockchain-based financial solutions that we see as not complete replacement of the existing financial sector and improvements that Brings on top of that, we see it as coexistent and complementary in many ways. Both will develop at different paces, but I think that at this point, it's also undeniable that if you look at some of the um, at the performance of some public tokens versus DeFi projects, right? Like the worth of those DeFi projects has been validated in many cases, and I would also say that it also some of the things that have made the most headlines, right? Not in the most positive manners, but the issues precisely about the problems of centralization or overly centralizing. And I think that those speak to the merits. By comparison, they speak to the merits of DeFi. So how will this technology impact FinTech? I don't think it will replace it. I don't think we're seeing a world where FinTech innovates on traditional financial legacy infrastructure and system, right? And then DeFi will eventually take over that. I think in many ways, they will they will work together in the future. How that will play out depends a lot on regulation. In the US, it's, it's, it's certainly unfolding and at a global level. And also that the worth of DeFi is very different in emerging markets to, to develop markets. And certainly, I think
0: examples like Venezuela, right, where inflation has been through the roof, the ability to put capital into a decentralized currency and stabilize kind of that deflation or inflation for for people is, is very important.
2: Yeah, Venezuela is an extreme example, right? But I would say if you ask me where's the majority of crypto talent in Latam, it's in Argentina. You're right. Venezuela is a good example. Argentina for me is the the best example there is.
1: (laughs) Well, to end every episode, we like to wrap up with two questions. And the first one is what motivates you to work hard?
2: I go back to what I was saying before about financial inclusion. I was raised in in Latin America. I well I moved there when I was eight years old, right? So I spent a lot of my childhood in the region. It never made sense to me why the social inequalities that exist in these countries existed. It's weird when you're a kid and you're in a car and you see another kid that's like selling candy to try to make a few coins on the other side and, and that person's your age and they're in that situation. You don't see it, of course, as much in the US or in Europe, but those things always impacted me. If you look at my career, I tried building a microfinance institution when I was in when I was at Penn in undergrad and I, and I was part of the microfinance club. You look at the work I did with Suyo, financial inclusion has always been a massive, massive motivating factor. So I've always been extremely motivated by the idea of creating companies that can both have immense social impact while building very profitable business models. They align the two very powerful forces. Right? And I think that it's very difficult, very difficult to do so, but there are opportunities to build massive companies that do just that. And I think that by investing in the type of companies that we're investing in emerging markets at Fintech Collective, we, I don't know, I have a very good shot of working with people that are, that are trying to do that and that are extremely competent and, and can also build very, very good businesses. So that motivates me to work hard more than I
1: do. Well, That's great. And what's a piece of advice you would give your younger self?
2: To follow my heart and trust my intuition. The older I get, the more I realize that you have to truly trust your intuition. Not all decisions that you make are logical. Sometimes things just feel a certain way and you have to respect that. And especially when you invest early stage and you have limited data, when you have to think in bed, so to speak, which is what we do here, you get more accustomed to that. Sometimes, even if something seems perfectly logical, but just doesn't feel right, you have to give that some thought, right? An undergrad, you, you guys know how Penn is, I think you get these very, very intelligent and hardworking and motivated students and you sort of channel them into some traditional forms of career building because that's what makes sense and people compete with each other to make sure that they can that they can be on that path and do the best that they can in that path. And sometimes there's very, very few people who take a step back or sideways and say, wait a second, you can actually go that way as well and it might work. For me, that's not exactly what I did off the bat in undergrad, but once I had the courage to do that, many good things have followed, even though it was scary at first. What I've done, by the way, is nothing compared to the path that many entrepreneurs have taken, right? And I think that's how that's how great companies are built at the end of the day, people that think that way. And it's not a coincidence that a lot of them are, you know, are the sons of immigrants, right? Because I think people like that are preconditioned to think that way.
0: It's a very inspiring way to to cap off a great episode. Carlos, thank you so much for joining us today. Taking time out of your busy day.
2: Thank you guys. Pleasure.